Hello and welcome to the Eco Chamber, a podcast on the forefront of environmental journalism brought to you by the team at ENDS Report. In this week's episode, we're covering the new blank check system that could be dished out for environmental crimes, the draft net gain text that campaigners say weakens the policy's delivery, and the new Minister for Animal Health and Welfare at DEFRA that has raised eyebrows with his links to the game Shooting Fraternity. Finally, for this week's deep dive, we'll be discussing N's investigatory revelations that the government ignored official advice when scrapping key air quality regulations. So let's get to it, folks, as we explore this week's Eco Chamber! Okay, Variable Monetary Penalties, VMPs. No, it's not a down payment on a parking ticket. Nope, it is not a credit penalty on a loan. No, a VMP is a civil sanction undertaken by a regulator to punish environmental offences contravening an environmental permit. If you're as lost as I am, don't worry. To help me understand these VMPs from my VPNs, I've got Shosha Aidy and Tess Collie from ENDS Report to help us get to grips with it all. So, VMPs. Variable monetary penalties. They're not new, but they have had a revamp, haven't they, Shosha? Can you just give our listeners a crash course in VMPs? Yes, so variable monetary penalties were introduced in sort of 2010. They have been a tool in the regulator's armory for years, but they were capped at £250,000. And importantly, they didn't actually apply to offences that came under the Environmental Permitting Regulations or EPR regime, as some people refer to it. Um, So this means that spills from water companies, for example, couldn't actually be prosecuted um, by VMPs before. And that's significant because when it was first proposed last year by the very short-lived um, environmental secretary, Ranul Jawadina, um, he suggested that we could use these fines um, to target water companies, but actually it wouldn't have worked legislatively. So now that tool is in place. The cap has been removed as of um, Monday and these unlimited sanctions can be used for any offender that is breaching their environmental permit. Okay. Yes, Ranil, he was here with us. Evidence, he has left behind evidence he was here. (laughs) Um, So are we going to be seeing some of those sort of multi-million pound unlimited fines handed out from now? So according to DEFRA, the penalties that will be issued are going to be proportionate to the size of the crime. Um, But it does mean that now instead of having to follow an infraction with you know, a prosecution and go through the court process, which could take a number of years. This is supposed to be a faster and easier way to do it. So when someone commits one of these offences, they'll get a notification um, and the penalties will be issued in line with the Sentencing Council's guidelines. So serious breaches of the law will still be subject to criminal proceedings, but there's this new way of prosecuting things faster. Yes, yeah, so stay out of the courts. Let's get this done civil sanction wise. Okay. Um, and is there, you know, are there any worries that, you know, conversely, are there any worries that this actually might slow things down? I think so from industry and sort of the more campaign side of things. Um, there are concerns as to how straightforward and transparent the appeals process would be. Um, lawyers have said that they anticipate that if more VMPs are being issued, more appeals will follow. Um, 
we did some research at the ENDS report. We submitted an FOI um, and we found that only one appeal has actually been successfully carried out. Um, and that was at the first tier tribunal. So the company Lord Demolitions Limited. Which is a fantastic name, isn't it? Lord Demolition <laughs> Limited. It makes it sound quite regal, doesn't it? That's very cool. Um, but they saw their penalty reduced from £1,000 to £625. So this re- reduction in the VMP. And oh, that was right. for a case in 2022. And so you, you mentioned your FOI. How many variable monetary penalties have been handed out to date? You know, what what's reading the tea leaves? What, what have we got? How many are, are there? There aren't that many, actually. Um, I was quite surprised. So I looked through our database um, on the ENDS report finds monitor um, and also corroborated this with DEFRA. And there have been 10 penalties handed out since 2013. Um, two of these still haven't been paid as of an FOI request that we heard back from in September, which I think is quite interesting. And 13 notices have been issued during that time, but three didn't go forward to become um, a penalty. Okay. Do we know, can we name and shame any of those? So the biggest VMP that was given out was to Anglian Water. And that was quite recently, actually. Um, They were hit with a £154,000 sanction this year after releasing sewage into the River Till, which is in Bedfordshire, back in 2018. But yeah, that that, um, penalty came through this year. It's the only one that's come even close to reaching that original um, limit. At 250 k At 250, yeah, Yeah. which is interesting. 250k? Sorry, 250 quid, mate. That would have been a low cap. Um, but yes, this is also significant um, because it was under the Salmon and Freshwater Fisheries Act, which, you know, the whole time those sorts of penalties could have been given out. And most of the VMPs that have a, a sort of substantial penalty attached to them do come under that legislation. And I note from your data that it's the only water company that have been issued a VMP which is also very interesting given these latest, you know, revamps to VMPs to incorporate those environmental permits that water utilities need to operate under. So mm-hmm. I think it's maybe maybe it's a taster of, of things to come. Maybe, or maybe water companies won't. One last thing to add on that, of course, is um, a lot of water companies previously would take the civil sanction and go forward as agreeing an enforcement undertaking yes. where they'd pay the money to a charity. So... Now the penalties from water companies will actually be going into a water restoration fund instead of the treasury. Um, so I wonder if perhaps we'll see more of these sanctions applied now that we know it will directly go into, as they say, benefits for water environments. I, I love enforcement undertakings, um, not because of the, the pollution that they that, that they are responsible for, but I've seen a few times now water companies issue these press releases of how great they've, they've, they've oh, look at all these tens of thousands of pounds we've given to this local wildlife trust, only to fail to mention in the press release that this was a result of an active undertaking <laughs> where they have voluntarily produced their money because they polluted the place in the first place, uh, in the first instance. So yeah, anyway, uh, enforcement undertakings, yes, maybe, maybe, maybe we'll do something on that next year where we're up to. Um, what have the powers that be said about these VMP powers, Tess? Um, well, so Steve Barkley, Environment Secretary, and of course, whose wife works for Anglian Water, let us never forget oh. it. Um, he said that the new changes will see a proportionate punishment for permit breaches. Um, he said polluters should be in no doubt 
that if they harm our precious habitats and waterways, they will pay. By lifting the cap on these sanctions, we are simultaneously toughening our enforcement tools and expanding where regulators can use them. Uh, so that's what he said. And, you know, as you can imagine, uh, the environment agencies put out similar sort of sounding words. He, John Leyland, uh, executive director, he said that the threat of uncapped financial penalties should boost compliance with environmental laws, helping mm-hmm. us provide stronger protection for the environment, communities and nature. Uh, so I guess the proof will be in the pudding. Has everyone else has responded favourably to these new powers? I think a lot of people are, you know, waiting to see what happened. Um, as as Tess said as well, when the proof being in the pudding, I like that phrase. Um, Fergal Sharkey did write on X that, you know, power was never the issue because the Environment Agency did have these sorts of tools before. He said, and this is a quote, want to guess how many mega fines will be handed out in the next 12 months? Rhetorical question? I don't know, because it will be answered. So, um, yeah, I think everyone's just waiting to see what impact it will have and whether it will be a deterrent. Loads, Fergal. There'll be loads and loads. You'll be so happy. (laughs) Your Christmas come early. From the increased powers then of civil sanctions to the potential weakening of biodiversity net gain processes, after the government published a suite of draft statutory instruments and guidance documents at the end of last month that environmentalists say weakens the policy. Before we get into that, Tess, biodiversity net gain, what is it? What does it do? When does it kick in? So net gain is a policy uh, intended to is intended to create and leave natural habitats in a, in a measurably better state than than before development takes place, uh, and it's going to require that pretty much most developments in England deliver a minimum ten percent uh, uplift in in nature and biodiversity uh, than existed before any building took place. It's due to take effect uh, in January. We don't have an exact date yet, uh, but with smaller house builders also impacted from April. And then very large uh, development projects, nationally significant infrastructure projects uh, will be kind of brought into it um, from 2025. Okay. So we've got sort of the timeline, what it is, measurably being the key word there, we've got to measure this stuff. What does the latest move from Westminster sort of do to the net gain policy? Well, essentially, one of the these draft statutory instruments amongst this sway that was published a couple of weeks ago, it could see habitats of kind of classes significant of significant wildlife benefit um, made more vulnerable to development uh, through an undermining of what's called the mitigation hierarchy. Um, and, you know, yeah, Many environmentalists and lawyers see this as a potential weakening of the net gain measure. And crucially, it wasn't, no one really saw this coming. So during the consultation phase for biodiversity net gain, um, the government proposed that it would sit along or work alongside the mitigation hierarchy, which is laid out in something called a national planning policy framework. And this basically says that in the first instance, uh, developers should aim to avoid or reduce impacts on biodiversity before then thinking about how do you offset it. Basically, before you even start thinking about mitigating, how can you just maybe not do it in the first place? That's what it is. But in what one of these draft statutory instruments published last week, what we spotted here at ENDS was that one part of them introduces a, a new definition of this, this hierarchy, the biodiversity gain hierarchy. Um, which qualifies the one we understand, the kind of the one that most people thought we'd be working with, uh, to say that it would only apply for habitats classed as having a high or very high distinctiveness, leaving those classes medium or lower than that outside of consideration. And it's it's got a few hackles up. Okay, so we've got this national 
the MPPF, the National Planning Policy Framework, this kind of national blueprint for how we should do things. The government's come along and we've got that. The government's come along and said, hey, we've got this new hierarchy that we can sort of place alongside it for net gain, although we have this avoid, mitigate, compensate hierarchy as is. And then then somehow, so, so okay, I'm with you there. So we've got to balance these two things now, not just one thing. What what does that actually mean in practice? So it seems to mean that net gain plans submitted by developers will only need to be able to prove that adverse effects have in the first instance been avoided for those these these priority habitats, um, meaning that some other ones, which although they're not classed as priority, include things like heathland and shrub and certain types of woodlands and forests. Um, I mean, in theory, following what it says in these draft instruments, it seems that you know, a developer wouldn't have to first think, how do I avoid damaging this habitat first? Because the value's pretty low. Yeah, well, it's because it's medium, not classed as a, having a, a high one. Um, and, you know, there's all sorts of classifications as to why something gets classed medium or high or whatever. Um, and, you know, you could say this is maybe a good idea. Maybe we should, we should be focusing on just on the priority habitats. That's for, you know, all the experts to debate, I suppose. But What's interesting and what I, you know, why I found interesting was that this just came out of nowhere, really. No one saw this coming. Um, all the very good environmental lawyers and all the, the campaigners, the experts out there, this seems to have just come out of nowhere. And it seems a fairly significant departure from what everyone thought was coming. And we're only, of course, we're like, we're like weeks out in theory from uh, this thing becoming, becoming law. Uh, and DEFRA has been quite clear to me to say that look this is draft it's it's not final it won't be final until it's it's laid properly in parliament but we, we will see it's we're very close to the deadline now and i i think everyone's trying to grapple with all these details you mentioned some of those voices which you know are super surprised can you just tell us you know who you've been speaking to what they're saying yeah so i, I raised it when i spotted it first with them. Um, Richard Benwell is the chief executive of the Wildlife and Countryside Link, and he he said, "Look, it, it could it, it's right that developers and local authorities pay particular attention to avoiding damage to some of our most distinctive habitats. Um, but what this draft in- instrument risks is creating a cutoff for mitigation hierarchy, which could basically leave all kinds of habitats as fair game, to use his phrasing. Uh, and he's basically called for Defra to look at this again, saying it could be easily amended to indicate that special priority." should be paid to these most unique and scarce ecosystems but not but it shouldn't be the case that the others are just left uh left vulnerable um i also spoke to uh natalie doofus who's a, a an ecology research scientist at oxford university has done lots on on biodiversity net gain um that team has been putting all sorts in recent years um but she told me that it was unclear to her and i you can't emphasize enough, these are the real experts. Um, unclear to her why it's been decided that net gain hierarchy shouldn't apply to these other habitats. And even less clear how this new hierarchy links into the existing system. Um, the, the mitigation hierarchy sets out to avoid and minimize impacts on all habitats before resorting to offsetting, she said. But now this will only apply to, to those of a, a high distance or greater. And, and she said she was concerned that this leaves many basically in a precarious state. Um, and theoretically, developers could move straight to destroying and offsetting. Um, so that's that's what's gone on here, and uh, we'll have to see what happens. I suppose we don't yet know. It is so interesting, is it? Because it, you know, how do you should you scrub the scrub? 
it's like that's it provides such incredible habitat for those sort of overwintering birds you know the yellow hammers the linnets I remember when I first read your story, I immediately jumped to Keir Starmer and his planning policies because I don't think he really rates scrub. Um, <laughs> and it's certainly, at least at least to me, it just seems to add an extra layer of complexity to what is already a very nascent new environmental policy. Yeah, and some uncertainty just weeks out from it. I think and that's the other thing. You know, people were really waiting on all this guidance to be, to know really what's going to be happening come come January and. Now there's little details here and there. It's like, well, we didn't didn't see this coming. So anyway, it'd be you know interesting to him. Or we're actually going to be having uh, a webinar on the line. We've got Lucy Cheeseman, uh, Defra's head of net gain, a deputy head of land use. Nick White, natural England's net gain czar. And we're going to have uh, Jessica Lewis from the Barclay Group, who's you know the big big developer. So I think it'd be really interesting to hear you know where we are at with all of this and what's coming up, what people need to be looking out for. So do tune in if you can. And I'm sure you'll be putting some questions to Nick and Lucy about this very subject. Quite possibly. Our final story lands us at the metaphorical feet of the new minister appointed for animal health and welfare at DEFRA, who was appointed last Friday. But his rise has drawn some criticisms from some quarters. Who are we talking about, Shosha? So Robbie Douglas Miller um, is the new minister for animal health and welfare at DEFRA. Um, he also is a Scottish shooting estate owner and former director at the Game Shooting Lobby, the Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust. Ah, yes. now I hadn't. He, he's not a name that I've seen on the uh, House of Commons register, is he? No, um, he's actually not an MP. He was given um, a position at the House of Lords alongside this DEFRA appointment, actually, so that he can take up the post because you have to be in either of the houses, I believe. Classic. Cameron nice. Cameron did that, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. I was like, how did he do it? And then someone <laughs> said, oh, he's a lord now. Right. Yeah. Classic move there. Make them a lord. Right. So what do we know about Douglas Miller other than that he's a lord now? Well, we do know that he was given an OBE for his services to wildlife conservation in Scotland in 2021. His family owned the Hopes Estate, which is a shooting estate in East Lothian. His family also owned the Braveland Estate in the Pentland Hills, which is just south of Edinburgh. Um, and that one has a mission statement, which is that it's committed to the critical issues of today, which include biodiversity loss, habitat restoration, wetland creation and native woodland generation. He's also listed as being on the Sutherland District Salmon Fisheries Board and is former chair of the Atlantic Salmon Trust, which is a charity that says its role is to halt and reverse the salmon crisis. Um, and there is a salmon crisis, sorry, contemporary news. <laughs> news alert. Important. Important. It's now been listed as an endangered species, the Atlantic yes. salmon in the UK. It has been. I think um, Pippa reported on this on the ENDS Report website, a really good story covering it. Um, it's also been a big topic at COP28, I think, brought by Lord Benyon. Well, um, uh, <laughs> uh, big, I suppose. <laughs> big if you're fish, yeah. if you're into fish. Um, it's well, been on the agenda. So, 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 but, but, but all jokes aside, I mean, salmon is such an incredible, you know, indicator of the health of our mm. rivers. So so we joke, but it's it's not It's, it's not, not funny. So it's not funny. <laughs> it's we not laugh funny. because we'll only cry. Yeah. Okay, so that is interesting. You know, fisheries can do interesting and good work for conservation, as can some shooting estates. 
which leads me to my next question. What do we actually know about, you know, Douglas Miller's estates, Tess? Well, so both estates have achieved accreditation under the Wildlife Estates Scotland scheme, uh, which is administered by the landowners lobby group, Scottish Land and Estates. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Wildlife Estates Scotland was chaired for several years by Douglas Miller. And he's also listed as having previously served as a director for the lobby group, uh, the Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust. So that's his sort of link in with, uh, I guess, the game the game shooting industry, which, mm. as you say, they can do mm. uh good things but it's, it's definitely a contentious uh controversial area because a lot of people would say actually uh, aren't there game... are a lot of wrong uns well yeah also if you some wrong uns there are there are certainly some wrong uns and i i but yeah it's all about what you use the land for and if you're mm. using if your, your main purpose is to improve the numbers of say grouse um and and that is your main priority it's probably not going to be for the the best interests of of every other species, but I've gone on a bit of a tangent there. No, 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 driven grass moors are a real, you know, it's a real thing. Uh, and there's a lot, a lot of uh, issues real. with them, which is not what the GWCT represents fully. Um, although some of its members will have uh, driven grass moor shooting. I guess that sort of leads us to that last point then, Shosha, that, yeah, it does, this does rub people up the wrong way, some people up the wrong way, this appointment. Mm. Yes, Green MP Caroline Lucas um, expressed concerns. Um, she said, just the person... <laughs> expressed concerns? <laughs> Go for it. What did she say? She said, just the person for the job of new environment minister, an unelected landowner who has restricted public nature access and backed bird culls. Someone I definitely trust to prioritise animal protection, nature access and environmental restoration. So what did... Lucas mean by backing bird calls? So interestingly, in his role as the chair of the Atlantic Salmon Trust, um, he was quoted in the media in 2016, suggesting he supported the use of culls to reduce the number of seals and birds predating on salmon. Um, He says there was a lack of understanding of the impact of predation by seals and increasing numbers of fish-eating birds. So he he backed um, a cull in order to protect salmon. Lucas does not back him, by the sounds of it. No, I think it definitely needs to be read with the sarcasm there rather than Yeah, than, than literally, yeah. Um, I, I thought Dr. Ruth Tingay's comments were interesting. So she's from Raptor Persecution. Can you can you sort of just, just read to our listeners what she said about this appointment? So she said that she didn't really know what to make of the appointment um, and asked what he could contribute with his background as a prominent grouse moor owner. Um, she wondered if he'd used his experience to try and impart some, in quote, sense to the appalling and unregulated mismanagement of England's grouse moors. Um, although she said that given the Scottish lands and estates, what she calls open-mouthed hysteria about the proposed grouse moor licensing scheme in Scotland, she doesn't think this is likely. Yeah, this is the first sort of intervention from Scotland's government following that Werity review and report, which has gone down like a lead balloon in a lot of shooting quarters because they don't appreciate regulation in what they see as a field that is already being very well self-regulated. 
it is worth just bringing Defra here about the appointment. Um, have we got Defra on the line? Is Defra on the line? <laughs> I wish. Uh, no, they have said in a statement that the minister is fully committed to the government's world-leading reforms on animal welfare, conservation and nature recovery. And now for the moment of the week, as we discuss and dedicate this section to COP28 and what we know at the time of this recording, we're going to keep caveating that, at the time of this recording, Tuesday the 12th of December. Right, so what do we know? What are the facts that we know about the conference, Tess? It's in Dubai. (laughs) Good, fact one, Dubai. (laughs) It's due to end today, uh, but a lot, a lot remains unresolved uh, as it stands. The the UAE has the presidency for this year's COP um, with Dr. Sultan Al-Jaber, this year's president who's been in the news a lot for all sorts of controversial reasons linked to him being head of the Abu Dhabi national oil company, ADNOP. Mm. Um, So there's almost about 200 nations making up the COP delegation, but a lot of people, people are not happy this year. Energy Minister Graeme Stewart has reportedly just, as you know, today we're, when we're recording, uh, left COP28 early to take part in tonight's crunch vote on uh, the controversial Rwanda bill. So, and that, that's that's annoyed a lot of people. I guess it just shows where the priorities lie at the moment with, with this government. Yes. And what were what were his parting words, Shosha, um, before he left to the UK? Um. He said that the draft for COP28 does not go far enough. There must be a phase out of unabated fossil fuels to meet our climate goals. The UK is working with all parties and will continue to push for an ambitious outcome that keeps 1.5 degrees in reach. And we know, back to our salmon joke, that it's um, not Stuart that will be pushing for this ambitious outcome, at least as far as ministers go. We've got our... Who is it? Who have you got? Lord Benyon. Lord Benyon. One point for Tess. I didn't say this is a quiz. <laughs> uh, who is pushing for salmon, right? The, which, unfortunately, one journalist, uh, Adam Vaughan, uh, environment editor at The Times, I think was having a dig at for him for pushing fish uh, rather than mm. dealing with this part of the uh, unabated fossil fuel phase out. Mm. I suppose to be fair... To Adam, I suppose the, what what is galling about the whole thing is is not that that Lord Bennion is talking about salmon. You know, he's a he's a defra minister. It's a good thing really to to hear him saying it. Um, but yeah, it's it's this huge international climate conference and fossil fuels phase out or not phase out is on the table. And the only government minister we seem to have out there isn't talking about that. I think that that's the that's the bit that sticks in the throat. So let's talk about that text then and, and, and what everyone's getting so irked by the the draft text itself we understand which which had reference to the phase out of fossil fuels instead has now sort of use is now using the word could setting out these optimal ranges of actions that countries could take to cut emissions to net zero by 2050 and then it says some really good things of what it could do so it's almost like it and, and i found it so interesting the text because it sort of says Look, we're in a real, we're in, this is not what it's, these are not the exact words, but the, the, the summary is we're in real dire straits. Things are really bad. Um, then there's the middle section which says, so you could do these things and these things will be really good. But instead, what we've got is we've kind of got this very polite uh, text, which says, amongst other things, I quote, um, 
including the reduction of consumption and production of fossil fuels in a just, orderly and equitable manner so as to achieve, to achieve net zero by, before or around 2050, somewhere around there, ballpark figure, that's not what it says, in keeping with the science. But that's the bit which hasn't gone down well, has it, Tess? No. So Alok Sharma, president for the COP26 summit, the big one that was hosted here in the UK, uh, said it is difficult to see how this text will help achieve uh, the deep and rapid cut emissions we need by 2030 to keep 1.5 uh, degrees alive. Um, and with so many countries back in clear language on fossil fuel phase out, who does this text actually serve? He asked, and we've seen quite strong language as well from the EU um, posting on Twitter, the Irish climate minister, Damon Ryan, who's part of the, the EU's negotiating team said, it's not a good text. It's not a balanced text. It's not ambitious enough. It doesn't deliver the kind of language we need to phase out fossil fuels. It won't be accepted. Um, so it, it looks like the EU could potentially w- walk away from the table. It's yeah, that it's it's really it's it's particularly bad. And I thought there was a really striking comment which came from one of the island or representative of the island nations, Shosha. Yes, that would be John Silk, who is the Minister um, for Natural Resources and Commerce in the Marshall Islands. He said that island states like his have been coming to COP for years to try and convince others that their future in their homes matters. He said, despite our best efforts, we are far, far off track. We cannot pretend otherwise. Um, And with current policies, the planet is still on track to a 2.9 degrees future. Um, He said, we can't adapt to a temperature rise that's high and the loss and damage will be incalculable. And the kicker in this is, he said, this will be our death sentence. So that's quite strong words. Um, On a note of hope, he says, we will not go silently to our watery graves and we cannot and will not accept an outcome from this COP that does not set us on a course for a future that stays within the 1.5 degrees Celsius temperature limit. So he's basically saying we've got to keep that 1.5 degrees alive. And that 1.5 degrees Celsius, that was obviously the ambition which was set back in 2015 at the Conference of Parties in Paris where all parties signed up to uh, limiting two degrees Celsius with that ambition for 1.5 on average um, temperature rise. And yet, you know, we're still seeing climate activists sort of having to make the case that, you know, this isn't happening quick enough and we're off track. Um, And I was particularly impressed by one particular uh, climate activist, uh, Lissy Priya Kamwajim, who is the... Uh, special envoy to the island nation of Timor-Leste. And um, she, she she walks into this room. It's very silent. She's got her, 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 her placard with her and it, it reads, end fossil fuels to save our planet and our future. And she starts yelling and she starts demanding representatives to act now, act now. Like silence for two minutes, this brave 12-year-old girl. Um, and then she's eventually she's, she's escorted out. And then the room starts applauding her, which is really interesting because you're like, oh, my God, what is what is happening here? And and, and regardless of what you think of, of whether that is right or not, in terms of climate activism, what is interesting is she got the front page of the Financial Times. That was her image, front page, Financial Times, COP28. So, you know, demonstrations, if you want to demo, you know, she's an example of how to do it. But whether or not she gets what she wants is a completely different thing. So, you know, we've we've talked about that caveat of could in the draft text, coulda, shoulda. Maybe it will say coulda, shoulda, woulda years from now. We'll see. 
but we could do doing these things at the time of this recording. Of course, this may all change overnight. You know, we might have a very completely different uh, text, final text. But as we stare into our crystal ball, as we try and read the tea leaves, going to bring that metaphor back again in this episode. What can we hypothesize will be the outcomes of this COP test? I, I, well, I mean, we, we could get a phase out goal, I suppose, as demanded by the, the small islands in the EU. But but if, if the big oil states don't agree to it, um, I don't know, you'd be looking for some sort of compromise text, but the small island nations really don't want to give way on it because it's sort of an existential issue for them. Because um, you've got to get those near 200 nations, all of them to sign it. Yes, you, you, they all need to agree. You can't. That this is this is why the the final moments in cops are all, all where all the the real business goes down because it's all about the final. It's the, this comma here, this dash there. Is it phase out or phase down? Affects what a whole unanimous group of nations can sign up to, and that's where you like when we had the COP twenty six here. It was in that those final moments that. The, the the ambition to see the phase out of coal got watered down, and that saw like, Alok Sharma almost basically crying on the mm. on the panel, because um, that is where you gets where people really play their cards. So it's it's all all very tense. And what's the worst case scenario? Breakdown, I suppose, of the whole COP, which um, has never happened before. But it's, it's that thing of any one item could bring everything else down. Mm. Um, mm. And then I oh God, God, I don't know what happens from there if, if, if the whole process breaks down. Um, but you know, we got to hope that doesn't happen, and enough people see that this is a it's a political enough issue in enough parts of the world, maybe in in kind of oil consuming parts of the world, um, that hopefully that won't happen. Time for our deep dive, and it's an exclusive from N's news editor, Pippa Neal, who has discovered how government players ignored official advice when scrapping key air quality regulations. And guess what, listeners? The clock is ticking. Pippa, can you set the stage for us? So basically, in less than three weeks' time, on the 31st of December, two key air quality regulations, Regulation 9 and 10 of the National Emission Ceiling Regulations, will drop off the statute book. And this is basically because the government is choosing to revoke them under the Retained EU Law Act, which listeners of Eco Chamber or readers of the ENS report, I'm sure you'll be familiar with. But this is basically kind of a somewhat controversial new law that enables um, ministers to kind of revoke pieces of retained EU legislation at their own kind of whim. You mentioned Regulation 9 and 10. For those listeners who might not know, like me, what are they? So Regulation 9 requires the Secretary of State to prepare a national air pollution control programme, which is basically a plan on how to limit pollutants in accordance with the national emission reduction commitments that are set out in these regulations. And then Regulation 10 requires that before preparing or significantly revising this National Air Pollution Control Programme, that the Secretary of State must consult the public. Okay, so, you know, regulations do get dropped off the books. That's not uncommon. Why should we care about these particular sets of regs? So when it was announced earlier this year that that the government was scrapping these regulations, it sparked, I think, what you could call outrage. Um, So environmental law charity Client Earth accused the government of attempting to skirt accountability because they basically said, you know, by revoking these regulations, there's like less transparency. It's more difficult for NGOs, kind of stakeholders, people interested to understand what the government's plans are. 
Um, And the decision also prompted concerns from the government's own environmental watchdog, the Office for Environmental Protection. Yeah, I remember this. Who they warned in July that revoking the regulations, in quotes, weakens accountability and transparency, and in the absence of an alternative comprehensive plan, has the potential to weaken environmental protection. Um, And kind of due to their strong concerns around this, the OEP wrote to the Environment Secretary, which at the time was Therese Coffey, um, and kind of raised these concerns. But Therese Coffey repeatedly reassured the watchdog that in revoking the regulations, there'll be no reduction in the level of environmental protection. And she emphasised that the government always uses expert advice when making provisions that relate to the environment. And now you know better, don't you? Yeah, so this line that I've just said that they use expert advice, this is kind of the crux of my story. So I've basically obtained documents via an environmental information request, which revealed that the civil servants who advised the government, in fact, warned that revoking these regulations would make it harder to track and set out progress against key air quality targets. So to kind of explain that a bit more, in advice that was given to ministers in March 2023, so before the OEP wrote to the um, wrote to the government, so kind of before Therese Coffey gave these repeated reassurances, the um, civil servants wrote to DEFRA officials and advised that the government carry out a public consultation before reforming these national emission ceiling regulations. Um, and they suggested that the government should put two options to the public. And the first was to revoke the National Air Pollution Control Programme with no replacement, with the Environmental Improvement Plan becoming the alternative process. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah, yeah, hold that thought. <laughs> and the second option was to revoke the National Air Pollution Control Programme provisions and introduce a new process for assessing policy options, with a new process triggered by a failure or potential failure to achieve an emission reduction target. The officials advise that changes to the regulations should take place in 2024 to allow sufficient time for a public consultation. And as we've kind of just explained, the Secretary of State ignored this advice because these regulations will expire at the end of this year, not in 2024. And she had that advice and still batted away concerns from the OEP months later, yeah, which were raised exactly. months later. Okay. And even more interesting, I would say, is that each policy option, these two options I've just, just set out, came with a list of pros and cons. And for option one, which is the option that the government has actually has ultimately gone with, which is just to revoke these regulations with no alternative, the officials warned that by doing this, there would no longer be a legal requirement to publish a UK-wide document on emission policies under consideration by all UK administrations, which they said would make tracking or setting out progress towards UK-wide emission targets difficult. The officials also warned that there would no longer be clear action following a failure to achieve an emission reduction target. And they also warned that the Environmental Improvement Plan, which, if people aren't familiar, is a document that builds on the 25-year Environment Plan and on the Environment Act and sets out the actions that need to be taken to restore nature and reduce pollution. Um, But the officials warned that this Environment Improvement Plan is not an adequate replacement. And significantly, they highlighted that the Environmental Improvement Plan cycle is every five years, meaning that it could be four years between an exceedance of the legal air quality targets happening and the government setting out new policies and measures. Right. So it's a thorn in their side every five years, as opposed to more continual checking otherwise with the regulations in place. Yeah. And we are talking about some pretty, what can be some pretty harmful air pollutants. We're talking about PM 2.5, PM 10, ammonia, um, nitrogen oxides. 
and that at the moment then you know legal wonks think is being weakened is that right yeah, exactly. So having reviewed the documents, Client Earth were pretty shocked at the findings. And Emily Kersey, who's an environmental lawyer, told me that it's evidence that removing the regulations does indeed constitute a, re- a regression of environmental law, and also that the government knew this. So something that they repeatedly, repeatedly said is, this is not an environmental regression. But yeah. kind of Emily is saying here that that's not true, and the government knew that. Ruth Chambers, who's a senior fellow at Green Alliance, also said that DEFRA ministers have shown a blatant disregard for laws that protect us for air pollution. She said that the decision falls short of the standards needed to ensure that our environmental protections are enhanced and not eroded behind closed doors. It's quite interesting as well, because obviously we have this three week, more or less, period between my story coming out and these regulations being scrapped. Um, And Ruth Chambers and also Green MP Caroline Lucas have both asked DEFRA to order an immediate rethink of these plans. Uh, Caroline Lucas asked ministers to urgently take steps to prevent these regulations from being stripped off our statute book in just a few weeks' time. And she also asked them to explain why they felt that this decision was in the interest of people and the planet. We've mentioned them a lot during our conversation. What has the OEP made of your investigation? In response to these revelations, Helen Venn, who's the OEP's chief regulatory officer, emphasised again that the OEP consider the revoking of these regulations um, to weaken accountability and transparency. And she said again that the absence of an alternative plan has the potential to weaken environmental protection. Um, she also emphasised that it was extremely disappointing that the then Secretary of State, Therese Coffey, chose not to engage constructively with this concern when the OEP was writing to the government in July. Yeah, and if you want to read those series of letters, exchanges, you can go onto the ENDS report um, and where we've where we've diagnosed it all, analysed um, and published. And in response to Pippa's uh, investigation, a DEFRA spokesperson has said that the emissions reduction target set out in the National Emission Ceilings Regulations remain unchanged. And as such, there has been no reduction in the level of environmental protection. They say we are committed to achieving these reduction targets and are maintaining the reporting provisions to ensure there is transparency on our progress. They go on to say when we consulted on the National Air Pollution Control Programme, as required by the National Emission Ceiling Regulations, a number of stakeholders said the format could be improved. So with this in mind, we are considering how we can simplify the process to reduce administrative burdens and improve transparency. If you want to read Pippa's story, you can do so on the ENDS or on the Guardian's website. And that's it. My thanks to Shosha Aidy, Tess Colley and Pippa Neal for coming on to this week's episode of the Eco Chamber. We would love to hear from you listeners, so please do send us your thoughts, your views, your opinions, your critiques over to me at ecochamber at haymarket.com or on X or other socials using the hashtag ecochamber. Please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and maybe even share it with a friend. Until the next time, take care.